Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, fellow time travelers. I hope you're well. To help support the making of this podcast, sign up to my patreon.com site, where you'll get to see me in person every week. Who could ask for more? Each week I post a video about how history collides with the present day. Last week's scorching heat sent me back to ancient Greece and the events which inspired the film 300. Other vodcasts have been about the Battle of Britain, Buried Viking Treasure, Boris and Carrie and Marie Antoinette. Anyway, I'm sure you get the picture. It's a great big bag of intriguing historical nuggets. To get your hands on it, go to patreon.com and search for me, Neil Oliver. It'd be great to see you there. In the meantime, here's the next episode of my love letter to the British Isles. Cue the music. The pleasure that I got from remembering Tamashanter changed my life and set me out on a path that I'm still on to this day. So Robert Burns is foundational to the person that I am today. In this podcast, we're connecting with a man whose genius has touched millions of people around the world. Russians and Romans, New York wasps, New Delhi Hindus, Australians and Icelanders, they all know the words of Old Lang Syne. My life fleetingly brushes against his. I spent some of my childhood in Ayr, near where he was born, and I grew up in Dumfries, where he died. Robert Burns is an adored everyman, a national bard, a writer who managed to exert an influence and to make the world a slightly better place. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the British Isles. Hi Neil. In the last podcast we felt the white heat of technological change as the Industrial Revolution took root in Colebrookdale. Where are we now? Well, Paul, we couldn't be further from the emerging industrialisation with its mechanisation and burgeoning workforces that were sweeping the country. This week we're with one man whose brilliance with a pen sent his words racing around the world, touching hearts, uplifting minds and bringing folk together. We're in Burns House in Dumfries.
This week, Paul, we're close to my heart. Geographically, you might say, as well as emotionally. The love letter this week comes from Burns House in Dumfries. Now, that is the house in which Robert Burns lived part of his life and the house in which he died. It was from there that he was taken to the local kirkyard, the churchyard at St Michael's Church and buried. Now, Dumfries is the town where I mostly grew up. But interestingly, I feel a strange connection to him because I owned the earliest part of my childhood in the town of Ayr, on the, over on the west of Scotland. And it was in Ayr, in a little cottage, that Robert Burns was actually born in 1759. And I could have done the love letter just as easily from that little cottage. It's kept now by the National Trust for Scotland. It's a museum. And it's the simplest little cottage. It's a sort of a white painted thatched roof effort. It's exactly what you'd imagine of a cottage from the 18th century in Scotland. It looks the part. So he was born there, where I was a very small boy. I lived in Ayr from the age of about one until my family moved to Dumfries when I was about six or seven. And Dumfries was really where I did all my growing up. It's where I really went to school and it's from there that I went to university and my mum and my sisters still live in Dumfries. I'm very much a, a product of Dumfries, really. In every practical sense, you might say I'm from Dumfries, although I wasn't born there. So the fact that Burns's life and death is bookended by Ayr and Dumfries, and to some extent mine was as well, so that, that makes me feel connected to him. What are the people from Dumfries like? Oh gosh, gosh. Well, it, part of part of my f- love of the British Isles uh, is the variety of differences in attitude and accents and ways of thinking, and it undermines the the national boundaries for me. England, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales are one thing, but if you move around in a, in any one of those countries, from the northeast of England to the southeast of England, it's totally. I mean, you know, totally different. Northwest, Southwest, the people of the Midlands, the people of the coasts. It's that tapestry of variation that I find so exciting and stimulating that sometimes you've only got to travel 10 miles <laughs> yeah. and you come to where people sound differently. They they have a different, maybe industrial tradition or they have a different way of life. And it's, it's that variety. What are people from Dunfries like? They call themselves Dunhamers which is a, a, a Scots version of down home. And there's various interpretations that it's maybe, you know, people working in the fields out with the town and coming down ha- down home at the end of the day. But they call themselves Dunhamers. Gosh, it's, I've been, I, was so, I was so close to them for so long, it's hard to say what they're like. It's a, it was a market town. Really, it, it stopped being that during my lifetime. A lot of changes really to agriculture. When I was there, there were slaughterhouses there, there was markets so that uh, beasts would come in from all over, uh, cattle and sheep, you know, would come in from all over the country and they'd be sold. A lot of people worked in agriculture and it had a market town feel. It's one of those parts of Scotland where, especially out in the rural areas immediately surrounding Dumfries, the countryside is stunning. Beautiful, soft, soft green rolling landscapes. It's not the highlands, it's a gentle rolling landscape of fields and and woods and rivers and waterfalls. 
you can buy for very little money, comparatively speaking, a lovely house in Dumfriesshire. You know, beautiful. But if I was to take you on a tour of Dumfriesshire, you would undoubtedly think it was a lovely place, and it is. But it's a bit of a backwater now. It's been literally bypassed. There was a bypass built when I was living there, which meant that rather than coming through the main town, because everything gets pedestrianised nowadays, doesn't it? And it was all pedestrianised long ago, and traffic was sort of that was heading north and south skipped the town completely, and that's had its consequences. So it's a it's a quiet wee place now. But the Dumfries that Robert Burns or Rabbi Burns, as some people call them, the, the Dumfries that he knew would have been a, much more of a a thriving place by the standards of the day, a principal town, a market, a lot of agriculture centred around it, and there were well-to-do people, you know, moneyed people. So he would have known it as quite a significant place, I would think. Burns, for most of his life, although everyone thinks about him being, as a, which he was, a poet and a, a songwriter, a lyricist, for much of the time he, he was a farmer. He was born to a farming family. His dad, William, was a farmer, but never very successful. Working hard, working like a dog all these days, but never quite getting to the sunlit uplands of prosperity. It was always hard. And Robert came into the tradition, was a farmer too, and it never worked for him either. He never really managed to make a success of it, but he was really a farmer. So a lot of his poetry comes from, obviously, his being, his being physically close to the landscape. To a mouse, for example is the poem that is supposedly inspired by his having disturbed a field mouse while he was ploughing. Inadvertently broke up its nest and the the wee mouse had to run away. And the poem is all about how vulnerable we all are, that our lives could be turned upside down by forces out with our control, and that which happens to a mouse can happen to you or me. You know, your life can just be turned upside down and you're, at the, you're always at the mercy of, of greater forces than, than those you can control. But it, that came directly from his experience as a farmer. And throughout his work, you know, that, that idea of the, uh, that life is vulnerable. You know, in Tam Ashantar is his great masterwork. Most people would probably agree. The great long lyrical poem about the adventure of a, of a man coming away from the pub and on his way home he gets beset by witches that then start to chase him. It's a great long piece. And he writes there again that life is brief. He uses the illusion of, uh, of a snowflake that is so perfect, so beautiful, but is here for a moment and gone. Or like the snow falls in the river, a moment white then melts forever. So his, his work is riven, whether it be a mouse, a field mouse, or whether it be a snowflake or the aurora borealis, that flits before your eyes is very much aware of the fact that life is brief, that happinesses are brief, and at any moment your calm, peaceful existence could be torn asunder and it not necessarily be your, be your own fault, it's just fickle fate. So I couldn't write a love letter to the British Isles without Robert Burns. I suppose, obviously, I'm interested in things literary. I love books, I love writing and reading. And that element, I suppose, for many people, if, if they'd been writing love letters like these, you know, they might have gone for William Shakespeare, the bard. But Robert Burns is Scotland's bard. He's the national bard of Scotland. And, and because, as I say, he was born in the town that I knew when I was little and he, he lived his mature years and died in the town that was so significant in shaping my adolescence and the early part of my life that I couldn't, I couldn't not write about him. And 
apart from anything else, everyone knows that on the 25th of January every year, we celebrate Burns' birth, Burns' night. And I find it absolutely wonderful and fascinating and so strange that it's a relatively impoverished poet farmer from the southwest of Scotland who's known around the world in that way, in a way that really nobody else is. Not even Shakespeare is celebrated in that simple way, which is to say on his birthday everyone comes together and has a knees up. And it's not just in Scotland, it's not just in Britain, from Switzerland to Singapore, uh, the Cannyman pub in Hong Kong, uh, to the Dunedin Burns Club in New Zealand, from the Abu Dhabi St Andrews Society to the Caledonia Society in Hawaii, everywhere. When it comes to the to singing the words of Old Lang Syne, oh, by the way, a footnote, don't ever call it Old Lang Syne, sounding it like a Z. It's Old Lang Syne. Syne is since. So think since, which obviously, you know, starts with an S sound, but so many people call it Old Lang Syne. Uh, and that, that can get you into trouble. <laughs> In dumb phrase. <laughs> Scottish people can be very sensitive about that. So save yourself a lot of grief. But the point being that when it comes to singing Old Lang Syne, it's not just Scots that do it. It's not just expat Scots in bars in New York. It's Russians sing it in Russia and, you know, Italians sing it in Italy and New York wasps sing it and Hindu people sing it in Delhi and Australians and Icelanders. Surely there never was anyone quite like Robert Burns and surely there never will be again somebody that's been taken to the hearts of just about every nationality and you can't, obviously you can say it's to do with the quality of his poetry which, you know, some of his poems are lovely but there must be something else that has seen him singled out There's something about the way in which Robert Burns, through his writing he becomes every person. Because the things that he writes about are the stuff of life. And he expresses them so perfectly. And the, the lines, you know, you can string lines together from various poems and they're instantly recognisable. My love is like a red, red rose. The best laid schemes of mice and men gang after glee. Oh, would some power the gift to gee us to see ourselves as others see us. But pleasures are like poppies spread. Had we never loved so kindly, had we never loved so blindly. It's coming yet for all that, that man to man the world o'er shall brothers be for all that. He encapsulates simple and profound thoughts beautifully. He speaks from the heart. The genius that he was, it, it never brought him the recognition. It, he got some recognition and some, some wealth during his lifetime, but never enough. And at the end, you know, he's, you know, he died unfulfilled, I suppose you would say. And, and even in that way, I suppose, he, he's every man. He's a reminder that even people who have a talent, they're not necessarily guaranteed happiness. They're not necessarily guaranteed success, material success. His very existence has about it so much that we can all recognise. He was born, as I say, he was born in, uh, in a little cottage that he called the old Clegg Biggin, which is like the old clay-lagged house. He died on the 21st of July, 1796. He was only 37. Wow. Think of that. Such a world-touching, world-affecting figure. And he was, he was gone 
by the time he was 37. Most people, if they know anything about him at all, they'll associate him with women. He wrote a lot of love songs, and he certainly had his share of um, love affairs in and out of wedlock. He was married to Jean Armour. They had nine children during the course of their time together, but only three survived infancy. Only three of them actually made it into adulthood. Now that infant mortality is so low, it's hard to get your head around something like that and imagine so many of your children dying. Yes, absolutely. I, I, I suppose anyone, if you, when you walk through graveyards, old graveyards, beneath the names of a, of a man and a woman, there's, there are often so many children listed and they die as children and they die as babies. And it, it is, it's, it's surely almost impossible for us in the developed West to imagine what that must have been like. Imagine the emotional toll that that's going to take on a man and a woman. You're burying babies again and again and again. And I suppose counting your blessings if, if one or more of them actually survived into adulthood to carry on the family name. Um, so the love letter is coming from it's Burns' house. And the house in question, Jean and Robert moved into it with their children. And if you go and see it, the original address was Mill Street, in Dumfries, but of course, after his death, it was renamed Burns Street. It's a nice looking house, it's quite simple, it's double fronted, and it's built of local red sandstone. There's a quarry in Dumfries. It's also true that red sandstone from uh, Dumfries or thereabouts went out to become the foundations upon which were raised the Statue of Liberty. That's a good one. Yeah, in amongst the, in amongst the foundations beneath that iconic statue come lighthouse is Dumfries sandstone. So it's now Burns Street. It's a museum. It's looked after by the local town council, Dumfries Town Council. And if you go there, his writing desk is there. Wow. Little simple desk that he sat at. And there's some, some examples of his work in his own hand, so you can see Robert's own handwriting. But what you'll really be struck by is how small it is. It's quite an elegant house. And by their standards, it, they, they bought it and moved into it at a time when Robert was doing okay. And they would have been living the high life as far as it went at that point. They had a fine room for entertaining guests and there was a long case clock that's there. Robert had a study. They had a housemaid. For a period of time, they had a, a woman coming in and, and helping them look after the place. We know that they ate game and well-wishers who were fans of his work often sent them fresh oysters, barrel loads of, of oysters. So they had, some, they had some good times, but it was really never to last. He... Famously and controversially, he was working away. He was a farmer and he was, he was writing on the side and he got offered a job through friends of friends that would have seen him go and become the bookkeeper of a slave plantation in the West Indies. He would have been like a, an overseer of slaves, which obviously would appear to run contrary to someone who would write that man to man the world o'er shall brothers be for all that. In any event, he was all signed up. You know, you might say his bags were packed and he was going to travel west and the job might have been quite well paying and he might have enjoyed some prosperity out there. But as it happened, as luck would have it or as coincidence would have it, a volume of his poetry finally got published. And it's called the Kilmarnock Volume. It's poems chiefly in the Scots dialect because 
Unlike many poets at the time who were writing, even Scottish poets were writing in English, you know, what we would call sort of posh English. Robert Burns wrote a great deal of his work in the Scots dialect, which was the language of the fireside. It was the language of the hearth. It was the language that people spoke to one another. It wasn't highfalutin. It was common speech. And no one had done that before because poetry in those days was something that you kind of put your Sunday best on to recite poetry. You'd get your good shirt on and your nice pressed trousers and you'd stand up and you'd declaim a, a poem in your best English. And so Robert was quite controversial in expressing love and pain and hardship and all the rest of the vicissitudes of life in the language of the people. And so this, the, these poems, chiefly in the Scots dialect, published as the Kilmarnock volume, they got published just about that time and they, it took off. It took off. By the publishing standards of the day, it was a bit of a sensation. And so he unpacked his bags, <laughs> cancelled his ticket, and he stayed. And, you know, the rest is history. And on the back of those poems, he became a bit famous. And he went to Edinburgh. He borrowed a pony, legend has it, and he rode to Edinburgh. And there he was welcomed by the great and the good. Edinburgh at the, at the time was going through the time called the Scottish Enlightenment. You know, that's this period when, when Edinburgh, stinking, filthy old city that it was to some extent, it was also a place where genius had gathered. You know, and I've said before, it was said that you could stand at the Market Cross and within an hour shake the hands of 50 men of genius. So all sorts, engineers, inventors, scientists and men of letters were there. And so Robert was welcomed in and he was the star attraction at fancy parties in his honour in grand salons and some of the notable ladies of the city who were known for gatherings where there'd be bright, shiny people there. Robert was invited to some of these, so he became a bit famous. And so he had a bit of a success, he made some money off the book, but ultimately it just didn't last. He went back to his life in Dumfries. He started work as an excise man, which is to say it was up to him to go around and collect tax on, say, like imported liquor. So people who were smugglers would have lived in dread of the excise men coming to demand money from them and confiscate illegal booze. And he was making a bit of a success at that. He wrote poetry about being an excise man. But just as promotion was coming close, promotion that might have given him real, and his family, real financial security, there were rumours circulated about his disloyalty to the Crown. He had expressed sympathy, let's say, with the French and the American revolutions. He had come out as being in favour of the power of the people and the rise of the common man. And in the febrile atmosphere back in Britain at the time, obviously the British authorities were very anxious about the infection of revolution jumping the channel and causing similar. And so they were edgy. And so that it was quite easy as it turned out. A few words in the right ear. And Robert's prospects were dashed. So that the job advancement that might have brought him some security was done away with. Another thing that makes him completely identifiable and completely lovable, because he is, he's a lovable character, more than anything else, he was quite frail. 
Well, having said that, when one of the people that encountered him when he was in Edinburgh was Walter Scott, Sir Walter Scott, and Sir Walter Scott at the time was just a teenager. He was a lot younger than Burns. I think he was about 16 when he laid eyes on Robert Burns. And I don't know that they really met, but Walter Scott was in the room with him. And he described him as quite an imposing figure. A man of the land. He was a man of toil, and so he was quite well built. You know, you know the kind of physique that you get from working on the land all the time. So he was quite physically striking. There's a, a very famous um, portrait of him by Naismith, and he looks hale and hearty. But once he got into his 30s, the constant stress about money, the hardship of a physical life, his health began to fail. His years began to catch up on him, and he started to look old, and then maybe older than his years. A lot is made of the fact that he liked going to the pub, drinking, and it's probably overstated somewhat. It's not like he was an alcoholic or anything. He just liked the conviviality of getting together with friends and in mixed company in the pubs. So he probably did take some alcohol, but I don't think really in this excessive way that it's sometimes proposed, but there seems a suggestion that he may have had a rheumatic heart that may have been exacerbated by drinking. Even if he wasn't drinking particularly heavily, it probably wouldn't have been a, an ideal combination for him. So while he was in Dumfries, his doctor, a Dr Maxwell, suggested a cure to him, which, believe it or not, meant going to a place called the Brow Well, which is down on the coast, down by the sea, practically in the sea, in Dumfriesshire. And you can go there now. I've been there many times. The Brow Well, it's like a stone-lined space that's naturally filled with the seawater. And the traditional cure there was to go in, even in the depths of winter, which is when he did do it, you had to bathe fully clothed up to your armpits or up to your shoulders in the cold water. You had to stand for as long as you could, as long as you could bear it, and then come out and let your clothes dry on you. And you also drink some of the water. There's a lot of iron, natural iron in the water as well, this brackish water. Dr Maxwell had prescribed this as the cure-all for Robert Burns. But as you can imagine, for a man with a weak heart, it did not work at all. And in fact, quite the contrary, he died soon after. It basically finished him off. So he was buried. He was taken from the house in Burns, well, the house in Mill Street as it was then. And at the time, because of their financial circumstances, he was given a very simple burial in a corner of the churchyard nearby St Michael's. You can go there as well. If you go to Dumfries, St Michael's Kirkyard is just a, a five-minute walk from Burns' house. He died on the day that one of his children was born, his son Maxwell. On the day he died was the birthday of, of one of his sons. And to begin with, his grave was just a simple slab because that was all that the family or all that Jean Armour could afford. But his fame outlived him, obviously, goes without saying, and, and before long his house was a place of pilgrimage. And so other writers came and increasingly she kept the house as a memorial to her husband. She kept his books and his writings and, and other personal belongings and she would let people see them and handle them. It's recorded that on the 18th of August, 1803, Samuel Taylor Coleridge and William Wordsworth came together. The big names. Yeah, yeah, to, to pay homage. John Keats came in 1818. And sometime in the 1850s, the American writer Nathaniel Hawthorne, mostly short stories that he wrote, um, but he wrote The Scarlet Letter which is a, a novel about a woman who has a child as the product of an, an illicit affair and then she tries to reinvent herself and, and get over the, 
the stigma of, of, of all of that. So the Scarlet Letter is probably his most famous. So he came in the 1850s. Um, and eventually, as his posthumous fame grew, so it became possible to raise funds to give him a better posthumous burial. And there's a mausoleum now. A grand white mausoleum was built in a much more prominent position, a much more central position on, on a higher ground in, in the churchyard. And that was completed in 1817. So he died in 1796. And so about 20 years later, his coffin was dug up and reinterred with full civic honours. A considerable, honourable funeral for all the difference it would have made to, to Robert Burns. And when Jeannie's wife died in 1874, she was laid in the mausoleum as well. So they're, they're there beside one another. And just in all of it, he, he, appeals to, he appeals to so many people. As we've said, he's this worldwide international figure. And it's for a, a whole cocktail of reasons. But I think it boils down to the fact that he's every person. He speaks for us. And he expresses human emotions in language that we can all understand. He gets right to the heart of it. And when I've spoken about Burns in the past, I've always said that it's a great pleasure to me that wherever Scots have gone in the wider world, and it's said that if there are 5 million Scots in Scotland, there are 50 million people of Scots descent elsewhere in the world. Obviously, notoriously in North America and in Canada and in Australia and New Zealand and other places besides. They're all, they're, Scots are everywhere. <laughs> you can't walk far without tripping over a Scot. And... And so they're the, they're the pilgrims par excellence of the, of the world. They've, they've gone everywhere. And in so many cases, they've affected the world for the better. Over the years, as merchants, as inventors, as, as statesmen, as, as civil servants, and, and often as not just as simple, hard-working citizens. And everywhere they go, they take the poetry of Robert Burns. Yes. <laughs> I love that. You know, that, that it's a national trait, or it has been a national trait, that wherever they went, they took Robert Burns with them, tucked in their back pockets like a, like a windblown seed. And everywhere they went, that seed would fall out and take root, and some little flowering of Robert Burns would grow up. And so you get Robert Burns celebrated north, south, east and west. And in some ways, it means that wherever Scots went, or wherever so many Scots went, they took with them something of the best of Scottishness that everyman persona, that understanding of shared humanity and of how we're all affected by love and death and fear and uncertainty about the future. We never know what's coming next and life is short and as the snow falls in the river, a moment white then melts forever. He expressed that and it reaches out and it touches everyone of other races, of other creeds, of other religions. He just said the things that he said in a way that registers and is immortal. And it's something to be proud of. He's such an inspirational figure, isn't he? Raised by a hard-working family, used to toil, but still strives to do what he loves. Well, yes, yes. Ah, that's, that's part of the heartbreak of it, especially because in the end it doesn't save him. He dies of poverty, really. In some respects, he's undermined and his, his health is compromised by the hardness, the hardship of his life. And so despite the fact that he clearly had an, an astonishing talent with language, and more important before that, his observational skills, what he noticed, and his powers of empathy... He was able to look at his fellow creatures, not just his fellow human beings, and 
empathise with them and then to express what he understood of what it was to be a mouse or what it was to be a poor farmer because he had lived some of it but he had witnessed it. He articulated what it is to be in love. He articulated what it is to be in love more than once and with more than one person which is so often part of the human condition. And I think partly he's unforgettable because his brilliance couldn't save even him. He knew what it was to be alive and he knew what the best of being alive was. Family, good company, love, passion, noticing the natural world and all its wonders. He understood the best of what it was to be alive and he experienced it, if only briefly. And then, and then because of circumstances, he was taken from us and he was taken from the world too soon. And as is so often the case, the real quality, the real depth of his genius wasn't recognised until afterwards. And therein lies so much of the tragedy of what it is to be human and alive. Do you always take him with you when you travel the world? Yes, I mean, one of the first things I'd, I remember vividly, my dad used to go to a very famous Burns night in Dumfries in the Globe Inn. And the, the Burns Supper on the 25th of January in the Globe Inn was a big deal worldwide. People came from all over the world hoping to go to the Burns Supper in, in the Globe because it was a pub that Burns had physically been in. And there's, there's a verse of his poetry that he scratched into a pane of glass there with a diamond ring. You can go and see it to this day. So my dad used to go to that Burns night and I remember him coming back in one night. I was, I don't know, I was probably about 10, maybe even younger. And he told me all about the fact that, that a man had got up as part of the celebrations and had recited Tamashanter from memory. Tamashanter is pages and pages long. And I was awestruck that that was even possible. And I remember I went, we, we had a copy of Robert Burns' poetry, and I went and I, I started memorising Tamashanter. And it was the first thing that I ever committed to memory. And I can still remember chunks of it. When Chapman Billy's leave the street and Druthy neighbours' neighbours meet, as market days are wearing late and folk begin to tack the gate, as we sit boozing at the nappy, getting foo and unca happy, we think now on the Langscot smiles, the mosses, water slaps and styles that lie between us and our hame, where sits our sulky, sullen dame, gathering her brows like a gathering storm, nursing her wrath to keep it warm. I mean, I, I memorised about two-thirds of it. And it changed my life in a way, because I began committing things to memory at that point, not just Robert Burns, but all sorts of other things besides. And that became a hugely important to my life, as it turned out, when it came to presenting on television and to writing. The fact that I had amassed this store of material that was in my head it became hugely important. And when it came to doing pieces to camera and television, I had already sort of developed the facility to remember and to recite. And so Robert Burns set me out on that path myself. My dad went to Burns night, told me about Tamashanter, and the pleasure that I got from remembering Tamashanter changed my life and set me out on a path that I'm still on to this day. So, you know, Robert Burns is foundational to the person that I am today. Rising in rebellion, angry and dissatisfied. Fighting for freedom against their own government. The 56 signatories of the Declaration of Independence were all British subjects. People from these British Isles helped forge this incredible country. 
the founder and father of the US Navy, was born in Arbigland in Scotland. Devoted to his adopted country, he brought the battle for American independence back across the Atlantic to these shores and became a legend in the process, audacious and fearless in the part he played, helping to make his adoptive land the land of the free. Next time, in my love letter to the British Isles. To help support this podcast, which is and always will be free, and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment videos every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. Be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. And please write a review of this week's podcast and share it with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music is by Malcolm Goldie. The social media producer is Oscar, CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios. And the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production.